you're listening to Unlimited Hangout, a podcast exclusively available on rockfin.com. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. Here in early November, we are right smack in the middle of U.S. election chaos. However, having recently finished producing a three-part election special, I felt that it was important to do an episode on a persistent and nefarious agenda that will remain of primary importance to the U.S. and also globally, regardless of what takes place on or after the U.S. election. So recently, we have been hearing more and more about the so-called Great Reset, a marketing blitz being orchestrated by the World Economic Forum, and in particular, the forum's founder, Klaus Schwab. Though the term Great Reset may now be quite familiar to many of you, it is important to point out that this marketing campaign largely exists to promote what Schwab has long referred to as the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Schwab and his ideological allies often promote this new quote-unquote revolution and the current Great Reset as fostering the creation of a world that is quote, sustainable, empowering, and inclusive. However, if anything, this new world that Schwab and others are promoting is only empowering for those who are already deeply nestled within the halls of global power and is merely a way of sustaining the dominance of this global class of elites as the kings of the high-tech, neo-feudal system they seek to create. To discuss this and more, I am joined today by one of the most phenomenal researchers and journalists around today, Corey Morningstar. Corey is an independent investigative journalist based in Canada and is also a longtime environmental activist. Her work has focused on major issues such as uh, the global uh, ecological collapse, the nonprofit industrial complex, imperial wars, and the role NGOs play in promoting or sustaining those wars. And the main topic of today's episode, the fourth industrial revolution. Welcome, Corey. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Whitney. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being on your um, podcast. So to begin, the fourth industrial revolution is described by the World Economic Forum, or WEF, as a, quote, new chapter in human development enabled by technological advances that are, quote, merging the physical, digital, and biological worlds. It is currently being marketed as a way to ensure that the future is more sustainable and collaborative, or so they say, and those, of course, are just two examples of their many buzzwords. Uh, However, beneath the sleek marketing, there is a much more sinister side to what Schwab and others are selling. So, Corey, how would you, uh, based on your own research, summarize what the fourth industrial revolution really is and what is the world that it actually seeks to create? Um, Well, basically what it is, is the fusion of um, man with machine. And so it's basically blurring the boundaries between physical and digital. And so um, what that is, it's advances of things that you've written about um, over the past year or two, Alison McDowell, different people, artificial intelligence, robotics, Internet of Things, which is everything connected to the Internet that runs on the foundation of 5G, which you're not hearing anything about because it's been framed and passed aside into um, like a conspiracy theory corner, so no one looks there. Um, 3D printing, genetic engineering, gene editing, quantum computing, um, uh, autonomous weapons, automation. um, there's, There's some technologies right there. If anyone's, I mean, when I started, I started writing, um, touching upon this when I was writing the 
first volume of the Greta series in 2019, and I think in one segment, part Act 5, maybe Act 4 or 5, I touched upon it, and then I thought... I actually wrote in the series that I would come back to that and sort of um, expand upon it. But at that time, Whitney, I honestly thought that that was down the road. You know, I thought that was something that would uh, take a lot of a lot of effort to get people on board. For one thing, I didn't think there'd be public uptake, and I mean, it was just so depraved and sort of, you know, represent representative of the sort of depraved ideologies um, embodied within the minds of these capitalist psychopaths. And I, I didn't really see these things taking off anytime soon. I didn't think the people, you know, um, um, the global populace at large would accept them. So I thought I had lots of time to write about um, not only I mean, I wrote about it in the context, the the Green New Deal, the global Green New Deals will be basically a Trojan horse for the fourth industrial revolution, which I do believe is the case. Um, the great, I mean, that's been changed now to the great reset, sort of a, a, a rebrand. Uh, I'm sort of rambling all over the place here, but yeah, I think that's a good introduction. and. I, again, at the beginning, so when I realized, okay, so this is happening, you know, now we're going back to March, when I realized it was starting to already really, really roll out, I had to quickly start learning what it was. And I started following the work of um, Alison McDowell, and she was really, really frustrated that no one was comprehending what she was writing about. And I said, Alison, pe people don't know this stuff like you do. I mean, she's been writing about it for some time, but I mean, I, you know, blockchain, what's blockchain? I, I had to like literally stop what is going, what I was doing and go learn about blockchain. So with um, Forrest Palmer, who works with me, um, our wrong kind of grain collective we did create a primer that you can find on YouTube for people so if you're new to this and you're not sure you know you're not really sure what blockchain is and artificial intelligence machine learning I recommend that you go to that primer um, it was the text is developed by I believe his name is Larry Larry um, uh, I can't think of his last name. Anyway, it's excellent. His name is on there. We, we credit him right at the beginning, and it's a really great learning tool. Uh, I'll just stop there for a minute. Sure. Well, I think that was a really good introduction because, um, you know, the fourth industrial revolution is something that they want to implement really in every sector of society. So, you know, uh, there are a lot of, it, it is a very multi-faceted uh, um push, I guess you could say, with uh, that that seeks to really, well, as they say, revolutionize all every aspect of our lives, right? So there are a lot of different uh, tentacles it has. So as you sort of mentioned earlier in March that you were seeing this start to roll out, um, as both you and I and several others have noted over the course of this year, uh, the COVID-19 crisis has conveniently allowed uh, for a lot of these disruptive technologies that are at the heart of the fourth industrial revolution have allowed them to be uh, foisted upon the public under the guise of COVID-19 response, which is sort of, uh, has really allowed them to jump uh, years ahead in rolling out this agenda than they otherwise would have been able to. So in your opinion, what particular uh, agendas related to the fourth industrial revolution do you think have benefited most from uh, what has transpired under uh, the guise of COVID-19 response? 
Yeah, I mean, they, okay, so last year, the World Economic Forum, last June, actually partnered officially with the United Nations, and they were put at the helm of the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, people have to understand and recognize the Sustainable Development Goals. They're called, um, people refer to them as SDGs, or the Global Goals. Um, there's 17 of them. And so what they are, those are emerging markets. So they're basically under the guise of, you know, eradicating poverty, health, um, you know, these things that sound really wonderful and great. It's actually all about emerging markets. So we had last year um, and leading up to last year, we had a global economy basically on, the, on you know, um, teetering towards collapse. You had Larry Summers, you had everybody saying, you know, we're really, really close to global collapse here. And then you had last year, um, all of a sudden, last fall, you started seeing trillions injected into the economy. And I was wondering, and for years and years, I've written about the coming financialization of nature, where they actually um, will assign a monetary value on every living thing that provides, sorry, I'm gonna, you know, quotation marks here, um, ecosystem services. So every single thing um, free in nature will be monetized and give it, given, um, basically we've got payments for ecosystem services, you've got nature being bought, sold, traded on Wall Street, those with money, the people, the very people and corporations and institutions that have destroyed um, and plundered the entire planet are now going to own what's left. And that's also referred to as the biosphere economy. So you've got um, John Volans, who was um, one of the Extinction Rebellion business um, initials, uh, signatories to that. And he called, you know, he's, he's actually said, who will be the Bill Gates of ecosystem services? Right. So, oh man. Yeah, another emerging market. So, what you see, you saw um, a globe, you know, going towards collapse. I've been asking, how will they do another bailout? Like, how will they do another bailout? There's no way people will. Um, will accept it again after 2008 there's no way people are going to watch their you know their houses lost their pensions gone um chaos they how right and i kept wondering how and it kept getting closer and closer and closer and the global debt was over 250 trillion dollars and then at the same time they started campaigning on the it's called new deal for nature um also voice for the planets like a twin campaign out of world economic forum and world wildlife fund and that's the that's it right that's the legislation through um the united nations to implement um the natural capital protocols and so all this was edging closer and closer and i kept thinking how how are they gonna get this into place right and then they're selling a lot of it with the language um pushed by the you know the faux left the liberal left under the green new deal and so I'm watching this happen, and then all of a sudden we saw the pandemic, right? And we and we know about that scenario through scenario planning, which is is done by corporations and institutions all over the world, um, as you know, Whitney. And so, yeah, basically um, that happened in March. The actually the day the pandemic was announced, that that same day. The World Economic Forum partnered with the World Health Organization. They announced a partnership with the World Health Organization and, and over 200 of the largest corporations on earth to form the COVID, um, the COVID business task force. 
So it was just like this tidal wave of stuff happening. And then you had that pandemic, which Klaus Schwab calls a watershed moment. And so, I mean, this isn't, this is their words, not mine. Watershed moment, COVID-19 is catalyst. I mean, last year I kept, I kept writing, they're, they're resetting the economy. They're resetting the economy. They're rebooting the economy. They want to reboot the economy, right? They need a hundred trillion dollars. They're eyeing the pension funds. Um, they need more money. Um, when you monetize nature and replace GDP with natural capital, GDPs um, basically that's around ninety trillion dollars a year, and then the value, quote unquote, monetary value of nature it comes in around one hundred and forty trillion a year. So right away, all of a sudden, you create fifty trillion dollars out of thin air. So it's all about markets. It's all about money. It's all about um, expansion and protection of existing power structures. And then everything you see is window dressing, right? It's all like trying to re to maintain and up maintain existing social license to operate and um, achieve social license to operate for the Great Reset, which is again dressed in words like imagination and um, build back better. Right. The the marketing yeah. angle of this is really amazing to me, because if you look at the people that compose the World Economic Forum, including the background of Klaus Schwab itself, you know, you, you find uh, some of the most notorious uh, criminal corporations and financial enterprises. You know, you have people like Paul Singer, uh, a, bil a U.S. billionaire who's often referred to as one of the most notorious, quote unquote, vulture capitalists. Um, for example, you know, he's part of this, but, you know, they've been able to market it and really uh, uh, using mainly buzzwords or phrases um, or things like that that seem designed to appeal mainly to people on the left and those that are that are critics of of capitalism. So it's really been amazing uh, what they've been uh, how they've been able to hoodwink people. And it, I think it's very telling that they've been so focused um, on trying to get the consent of people on the quote unquote left, particularly progressives. Yeah, I mean, there's, you can see, okay, so one of the key players involved in this, Christiana Figueres, who was the UN secretary, she brought in the Paris Agreement in 2015, her family goes way back, Costa Rica, um, you, know, you know, her family's held the position of president there, her brother, her dad, her father, um, anyway, she's really quite instrumental in a lot of this, including bringing Greta Thunberg to the first Davos in 2019. Um, why was I even telling you about her? So, um, what did you just say that was leading me to that? Well, I was talking about how, oh. no, no worries. So how the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and people like that have been able to sort of cloak the fourth industrial revolution and, and these words and these uh, right, right, phrases right, yeah. that appeal to the appeal mainly exactly. to the progressive left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so this woman, um, Christiana Figures, so she's um, works with We Mean Business. She has um, started, which actually is the key person group behind Greta, the Greta Thunberg campaign, which started back in 2018. That was sort of that was sort of what kicked everything off. That. And so she wrote a book, it's called The Future um, We Choose. It's actually all about the future they choose. So it's just like another um, sort of storytelling effort to bring people on board. And 
if you look at that, I mean, it's just incredible. There's even Naomi Klein and Klaus Schwab are the two key endorsers for that book. So there you have Naomi Klein oh, wow. <laughs> and, and Klaus Schwab. Together. Um, yeah, together yeah. with Richard Branson, right? We Mean Business World um, Resources Institute, which works arm in arm with the Council on Foreign Relations. I mean... It's really, really powerful, the nonprofit industrial complex and academia and, and science, right? It's all funded by the same foundations, the same corporations. And I mean, that is, if you, it's, it, they've actually bought it all, they own it all, they control it all, right? So independent journalism um, is <laughs> really under attack and getting more and more um, difficult for. I mean, more and more important and more and more important to protect. Right. Well, I think it's interesting then that a lot of the people that have been the biggest attack dogs are really funding those attacks on independent media have been a lot of the same billionaires, particularly Silicon Valley billionaires that stand to benefit most from the fourth industrial revolution and things like that being implemented, um, you know, to the greatest extent possible. And so we have, you know, a lot of people like Pierre Omidyar, who not only funds Naomi Klein, right at the intercept, um, but also a lot of these uh, quote unquote fact checking organizations and, and things like that. And these these pushes to um, essentially regulate independent media or social media censorship and things like that. I think it's no coincidence we have that going on. And also the World Economic Forum through the Great Reset specifically has partnered with several mainstream media organizations, including one uh, in the U.S. called The Conversation. Um, where they, you know, the World Economic Forum will publish an article, one of their articles, and the conversation will run it at the same time. Um, and, you know, it looks like it's coming from the journalists at the conversation, and then you have to get to the bottom to find out that it was sponsored by the World Economic Forum and things like that, right? So, you know, I mean, definitely there is a huge uh, effort to uh, censor dissenting voices in media and uh, promote the ones that are, you know, uh, willingly promoting this agenda for whatever reason. So uh, definitely a good point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like even um, Imperial College works right on um, are in partnership with the World Economic Forum and the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And even last, if you go back to again, last January, when a lot of this stuff really, really started pushing forward, like sort of, you know, launching into the public sphere. Um, they talk about, you know, they had um, big meetings there and about a vaccine revolution, how to create a vaccine revolution, because more and more people, um, including frontline workers, doctors, nurses, are, you know, are not trusting vaccines. So they even, you know, I found even big, great big things on the wall showing how many people still trust in vaccines versus how many people don't trust in vaccines right so this was a really huge problem and so yeah there's lots of documentation about a vaccine revolution and how to create one that was last um november and now what do we see now we see oh what a surprise great big vaccine you know like um again sustainable development goal i believe it's number three is health if you look at that right now, that's where all the money is being injected into number three because of the vaccine market, right? So yeah, mm -hmm. this stuff's all, all tied in together, all interwoven, um, all these 
you know, big supposedly green NGOs, Greenpeace helped create We Mean Business, right? They helped create that um, organization, which represents, I think it's 24 million in market cap, or sorry, 24 trillion. So they're all woven in together, right? Avaz, Purpose, Greenpeace, 350.org, like all the big ones. World Wildlife Fund, um, again, one that we're guilty of. Um, complicit in murder, rape, um, torture of indigenous peoples. It's all being done under the guise of protection and saving the planet. Like it's, it's, it's actually horrific. Well, it's definitely horrific. Uh, that's for sure. Um, but, um, on a related point, one thing I've, I have always found really interesting about the push, uh, for the fourth industrial revolution coming from people like Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum is that they describe it not as a prediction of what the future may look like, but as a call to action. And they essentially say that this is something we have to create and we have to implement. And I think that's really telling, not just because of the marketing ploy, but because they feel, in my opinion, that this is really the only way they can continue to sustain uh, the existing power structures, right? Which is, I think, what they really mean when they use the words sustainable in relation to uh, the fourth industrial revolution and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if you go back again to again to Davos that um, last December when they were really launching this stuff into the public sphere and you hear, um, you know, Greta Thunberg for the World Economic Forum, we want you to panic. The house is burning, the house is burning. And then you go back and we find that um, sort of campaign being created by the climate mobilization. Again, all this stuff is interwoven, intermixed, same people, same organizations, all funded by millions and billions of dollars. And so it's, yeah, it's their house on fire, right? Like, yeah, the ecological issues, everything is real. I mean, you know, we're destroying the ecosystems we depend on for all life. That's real, but they don't care about that. Okay, so they're well, they're responsible for a lot of that, right? Exactly. <laughs> so that's so frustrating now to see people supporting this and promoting it. It's like, okay, these are the people and institutions that have just destroyed the whole fucking planet. They are not going to be the ones to save it, right? We have to tear down these institutions and these power structures. They can, you cannot, um, you cannot save the planet in the same system that destroyed it. And so that part is really, really frustrating, but they're so great at storytelling and they have so many resources and they just basically employ their armies of NGO and academia and science. And it's just like a complete, um, you know, it's complete uh, hijacking of the collective psyche, right? Like it's storytelling, it's social engineering, it's conditioning. That's such a huge aspect of all of this. Like even with the, COVID-19, the pandemic, everyone thinking all of a sudden these people care about our health. We all have Teflon in our bodies because our governments have allowed that to happen, right? The corporations mm-hmm. that run governments have done that to us. We Our air is polluted, our water is polluted, our environment is poisoned. These people don't give a shit about your health, right? They never have and never will. It's not about that. This is about and this is about um, alienating people, making people terrified to accept their said solutions, you know, all under the guise of protecting biodiversity, protecting the planet, protecting climate. Oh, we have to do this. It's the only way. 
No, but like you said, Whitney, it's the only way for them to protect their ruling class status, right? They, they're terrified of, of becoming like us. Well, you know, in, in, uh, with, with the whole COVID-19 thing, you know, before they were selling it as the only way to get out of the climate crisis. But now with COVID-19, they can sell a lot of the technologies that sort of underpin the fourth industrial revolution as necessary because of the fear over disease and the fear over the coronavirus and all of this stuff saying, you know, making people feel like their bodies are inherently flawed um, or dangerous that human workers in, in, in certain <clears throat> jobs and professions present a danger to people, whereas that wasn't, you know, a, a common way of thinking before. And so we've seen this push, for example, to sell um, things that have long underpinned this this fourth industrial revolution push, like automation, robots, artificial intelligence. Uh, we're being told that this is, you know, uh, now necessary in order to reduce risk in terms of public health and other things. So I think COVID-19 has added like a new level of, of marketing uh, potential for them. And this is interesting, too, because specifically Specifically, automation, uh, robots, artificial intelligence. Um, this obviously leaves little room for many jobs in manufacturing and other sectors that have traditionally been performed by people. So, in any other no, quote unquote normal world, right, those efforts would generate a lot of pushback from the public. Um, and so, you know, their efforts to sell this under, oh, we have to save the planet and all this stuff before COVID-19 didn't really uh, generate, um, you know, didn't actually uh, take hold really in the collective psyche, I guess you could say, as much as they had hoped before COVID-19. And now with COVID-19, they have a whole new layer um, that's based around concern about uh, public health, among among other things. Um and I think a key part of this, too, um, you know, that they're trying to uh, market alongside uh, those technologies are things like smart cities. Uh, I, I personally have seen several media reports over the course of the year um, saying that even though smart cities would be denser, more densely populated, they're actually better for fighting and preventing future pandemics and all of this stuff. So it's very um, interesting to see that. And at the same time, we also see smart cities over the past several years being sold along the same lines like you were pointing out as more sustainable and inclusive, uh, seemingly designed to appeal to people on the left and those who are critics of capitalism. But um, as you've pointed out in your work, smart cities are likely to merely lead us into the next phase of capitalism, just one that's more technocratic and arguably because of that high tech, more pervasive than its predecessors. So um, if you wouldn't mind expanding a little bit on, on smart cities in general, why they're crucial uh, to the fourth industrial revolution in the context of, of automation and all this stuff and how they are not actually going to solve the problems we're being told they'll solve uh, in that instead, you know, uh, they're really a, a blueprint uh, for neo-feudalism. Okay, um, so basically smart cities, I mean, for one thing, I just want to mention this because I th thought it was really interesting. I was looking a few months ago at a, an article on smart cities about transit, and they're actually designing smart city buses already where everyone's seated apart from one another. So the future, um, there's a really great article on wrong kind of green, as well as a blog called Winter Oak, and it's called Klaus Schwab and his great fascist reset. And the author, um, he has taken, he's read through all three or four of Klaus Schwab's books and he's taken out, there. the whole article is almost direct quotes from Klaus Schwab, but it gives you 
um, a, a really fascinating insight into what he sees as our future, right? For instance, people, um, simple joys in life, such as smelling, picking up a cantaloupe and smelling it and taking in the, the scent and, you know, the, the textures, the just that experience in itself, things like that, people won't even touch one. So a lot of what you're saying about this phobia of pandemic germs, that's really gonna um, help instill what they see coming. Um, um, So basically smart cities. So here's the thing, it's all going forward under the pretext, oh, this is going to basically save our planet um sustainable planet right before global or green new deal and then it was un came out at the same time with global green deal so it was going to be global they call this uh global new global governance right global new global architecture um it's presented and sold on the pretext it will be clean right but when you start going and listening to on Deloitte and Touche, every McKinsey um, videos, white papers on the fourth industrial revolution, you'll see nothing about nature. You'll see nothing about trees, nothing. It's all about tech and and control and people working within this um, highly controlled digital economy, which they themselves say. I mean, there's one video that actually says who will survive and who will perish. They foresee it as a lot of people wow. are going to suffer. Yeah, they, a lot of people will suffer tremendously. A lot of people will end up killing themselves. The global starve, uh, sorry, the global south. A lot of the global south will starve. That's all informal economies. They don't give a fuck. They're crushing them, right? So we're moving from bricks and mortar to digital. And if you're not going there, you're, you know, goodbye you're done um so again smart cities are everything has to run on 5g okay so that's really really important to know so without the 5g infrastructure there's no there's no fourth industrial revolution there's no great reset in 2030 that will turn into 6g so this is really really powerful 5g is 100 more up to 100 times more powerful than 4g it's the foundation for future autonomous weapons um it's really really tied in with artificial intelligence and wars which you already know about and write about um there's um they'll need a they're looking at around 100 100 trillion dollars to do all this they're eyeing the pension funds and so the thing about this i i need to how do i say this Okay, so it's it's basically presented as clean. So my third segment of the piece I just did now, I think is going to shock a lot of people because up until now, people have looked at aviation as one of the major greenhouse gas emission um, sources, right, on the planet. Like people have looked at aviation as being really um, bad mm-hmm. climate and that. Well, what is coming is gonna dwarf that. like that's gonna look like child's play because what is coming is we had about half a million data centers in 2000 and I think it's 2010 to 2012 well now we're up to over 8 million okay so the data centers like when you hear of things 
everyone thinks, oh, the cloud, right? The cloud, it sounds so pure. It sounds like, and a lot of this, it goes back again, framing, language, storytelling. So people think of technology as clean, right? Internet of things clean. Oh, all this stuff's magically happening. No power, no, no pollution, no nothing. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. So all the data has to go into data centers. So now they're, um, they're, they're building hyperscale data centers. And just this year and next year alone, I, I mean, how quickly they're building them to keep up with this data. And at the whole world is gonna move digital. So imagine, I mean, you're looking at 15 fold by 2030, which might even be, um, you know, really, really underestimating it because this thing is is going forward so far. Like telehealth this year went from three percent to eighty percent in in a couple months, right? So it's all moving online. All that takes massive amounts of energy, and so they cover that. They say, well, we're using all green energy and all renewables and solar, you know, solar and wind. Okay. So what they don't say, again, go to the white papers, what they're actually doing. Yes, solar. Yes, wind. Neither of those are clean or green. But even if they were, all the new energy being created is being sucked in, absorbed into the data centers. So we're not offsetting anything we're doing now with new energy. Like we're not creating new energy to get rid of coal plants or anything else. We're just creating, it's the Jevons, um, I think it's called Jevons paradox. We're creating new energy and where it's being used, consumed. And it's carbon capture storage, right? Where you, um, you burn and you pump it underground, right? And that leads into what's it called? An enhanced oil recovery. That carbon not only is pumped into the ground, it helps rejuvenate dead oil wells. So now you've got more oil that you can burn, right? And then so, oh, we'll, we'll buy carbon offsets, more nuclear energy. Bill Gates, um, Zuckerberg, um, Bezos, they're all co-founders of Breakthrough Energies, Breakthrough Energy Ventures. That's nuclear, carbon capture storage. I mean, <laughs> it's sold under the veneer of clean and green and beautiful and trees and environment, climate, Greta Thunberg. The, in actuality, smart cities are being built on the backs of, we We actually don't have enough um, metals and rare earth, um, minerals, metals on this planet to build everything um, in this depraved architecture. And so they've already now started mining the oceans. I mean, that's happening just starting now. Mm-hmm. That's a, another new industry. So think about that. This is all supposed supposed to be to protect biodiversity. Now we're going to mine the oceans. There is so much dependent on the earth. That's the life on earth is so interwoven with the life in the ocean. Uh, even the plankton, it's, it's so incredibly dangerous to be mining oceans and so incredibly stupid and short-sighted. But that's what they're doing, right? Because it's not about the planet. It's not about people's health. It's not about mm-hmm. protecting diversity. It's about money. It's about power. It's protecting. It's about protecting the very system that's destroying the planet. Well, I think there is an element of nature to what they're... Um... <clears throat> to what motivates them, but I I think it's very different than how people like you and I would look at it. I think these people 
their ideology is rooted in an ideology that's been around for uh, a really long time, really, um, about the need of man, of, of, uh, of mankind to dominate nature, viewing nature as something not to be lived in harmony with, but as something to be controlled and dominated. And if you look back at like the colonial period, you know, the Europeans, in the Americas, you know, they, they described nature as it was there, the forest, and also the indigenous people as savage, something to be civilized and things like that. And so I think this is really uh, the extreme, uh, you know, that taken to its extreme logical conclusion is a lot of what we're seeing now. So like smart cities, for example, even though they're marketed under this, you know, veneer of, oh, we're helping to save nature by living in them, it would just separate uh, the people that live in those cities from nature to a huge degree, but they're being marketed or, or being made to appeal subconsciously to people's desire to uh, be with, be in nature or to help nature, to save nature, and all of this stuff is, uh, I think it's all playing into part of that. But the end goal, I think, is steeped in the same ideology that's been very pervasive and around for centuries that views nature as something to be defeated and as an enemy, right? And so that's why I think this this effort to merge uh, humanity with, with machines, right, is sort of born out of that. And I think that's why a lot of these people that are driving this agenda you know, are transhumanists because they 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 feel that hu- humanity as a you know a human being as a part of nature as a natural being that that is is wrong that you know humans need to dominate nature and so the pinnacle of human evolution is not for humans to live in complete harmony with nature or whatever it's instead for them to merge with machines and, and things like that because that's why the transhumanists think that the pinnacle of evolution is the merging of, of humans with machines, which is the ultimate removal of humanity from nature, right? So I think, you know, they try to appeal to the inner desire and subconscious desire in people to be more connected with nature because a lot, I think a lot of the, um, a lot of social ills, for example, that we experience or depression that people experience has to do with the disconnect from nature that exists in our society as it is today. And obviously the fourth industrial revolution would just exacerbate that to a huge degree. Yeah. I mean, just even a few months ago when, I mean, right now at this moment, climate change has taken a bit of a back burner, like the whole discussion around that as a selling point for everything that all their um, architecture that they want to propel forward. But here and there, when I see, you know, sort of some articles on it, it'll say, you know, stuff about bike lanes. And, you know, of, of course, everyone wants bike lanes and all that and all that's great, but that's not what this is about. Right. So it's always repackaging things that are, um, you know, to to, you know, basically seduce people. It's like, right. you know, you get a taste of what they would like to see and what everyone would like to see. Uh, and it sounds great. Right. But you well, don't talk mm-hmm. about stuff. Well, I think it's sort of what you allude to in your in your new series about about social media you know, how they framed originally social media as, oh, it's going to keep you more connected and make you more social. But instead, it's, uh, as you point out, really destroyed the social and that destruction was calculated. That was the original plan, but it was marketed originally as something that would make us more social, right? And so 
a lot of the fourth industrial revolution uh, things are being sold under a similar guise. But obviously, if you see where things are really going, it's not going to make things, uh, it's not going to create an environmentally sustainable system. People will not be happier, right? And all of this stuff. And it's the calculated destruction of just, you know, uh, major aspects of what have what has held together human society for centuries, right? So um, that seems to be a common theme here in terms of how they market it. They, they say it's going to create more of something or foster more connection with something that people want, whereas in reality that it, it will have the opposite effect and they're very well aware of this. So um, <clears throat> with that being said, uh, so your new series is called It's Not a Social Dilemma, It's the Calculated Destruction of the Social, and that focuses on the role of social media companies and related entities, including the World Economic Forum, in engaging in what you argue is the calculated destruction of normal human social interaction, which of course is an obstacle to a lot of things uh, related to the fourth industrial revolution and its vision of impersonal automation and, and social connect, uh, connection existing chiefly via technological means instead of you know how it's always normally been done. So I wanted you to expand a little bit on, on those ideas. And if you wouldn't mind also focusing on what you touch on in the second part of your series about how these social media companies, namely Facebook, are using their technology and capital to engage in what you refer to as digital colonialism. Okay. Um, so that the documentary right now that's really... Have you seen it? The one on Netflix, The Social Dilemma? I don't have Netflix, so okay. no. <laughs> So on, so on Netflix, this documentary came out, and it was like, like right off the bat, you know, was, you could just see media was really pushing it. All of a sudden, you know, one of those things you you've not, you're not even on Netflix, but somehow you already know about it. One of those things because it's just creeping in to, you know, on the right side of Twitter here and there, like they just put, they they just push it into your psyche, whether you want to see it or not. So anyway, I saw, you know, I saw this um, film sort of going big. So I watched it. I don't have it, but I have a password I can use someone else's. So anyway, I watched it and, you know, I'm watching it and I'm like, yeah, you know, I guess. Yeah, that's good. Like this is all. Yeah, I agree with this. And this part's good. And then I could see the parts that were not good on like people that have seen the film I don't want to go through all the film but people already know what's in the film how they, how they frame it like you know even all voting is the be all and end all like meanwhile vote, voting in the US like whatever anyway um, <laughs> yeah I mean that's how I feel <laughs> yeah, I, I could just so I could see um, I don't even know exactly what it was in the film that sort of piqued my interest but it was something I, I can't tell you now exactly what it was but I when I went back to the computer I started sort of putting you know looking at the main people that were in the movie and especially the main character Tristan Harris and right away within no time I started seeing he was involved with he had this thing called Center for Humane Technology and he's from Google right and then I started seeing, oh, Center for Humane Technology, looking there and looking at the funders, looking at the co-founders. And right away, one of the co-founders is part of the Artificial Intelligence Committee for the World Economic Forum uh, Fourth Industrial Revolution Center. So I started seeing already all these overlapping ties. 
And then I just sort of dove into that. I knew that was something. And, you know, it's just another thing. Um, It's brought to you basically to obtain that, like, okay, so they recognized quite long ago that there would be societal backlash to all this coming technology because, as you know, they understand it is being very, very dangerous, right? In their own words, like I said, who will who will survive, who will perish? So they knew that they needed to get people on board with this. Well, how do you do that? You do that through um, what they call civil society, which isn't civil society, but it's NGOs. So you need the you need academia on board, you need um, NGOs on board, you need your media on board. So right away, they've they've already started this a couple years ago, funding, putting huge amounts of funding into these groups. So the Center for Humane Technology, um, the co-founders came from Google, right? They're all like multi, multi billionaires from creating their different apps, whatever. And then that became, um, you know, Ariana Huffington, right? Huffington Post. Mm. Do, mm-hmm. do you? Okay, so billionaire I think in 2000 early maybe 2014 she's on the cover of Forbes one of the most powerful women in the world so all of a sudden Tristan Harris is in a partnership with Thrive with Ariana Huffington's Thrive Global which is all about behavioral change right and again in ushering in this fourth industrial revolution workforce they need workers for the, for the coding and so if you look at that, well, who funded, who was funding Thrive Global, it's a venture. Uh, it's presented more like um, a media outlet, but it's actually venture capital. And so who funded that? Oh, Mark Benioff, Salesforce. Oh, from Salesforce. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he's the, and, you know, he sits, he's a member of trustees on the World Economic Forum mm-hmm. and the inaugural chair of the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So he's involved in that, um, funding this Thrive Global. So anyway, it changes. All of a sudden, Thrive Global adopts what it used to be called Time Well Spent, Center for Humane Technology. And then they changed it from Time Well Spent to Center for Humane Technology. And then Time Well Spent became Time Well Spent Thrive Global. Right, and so Tristan Harris and Mark Benioff have a have um, a close relationship. Uh, again, all these people, Wired Magazine, um, the co-founder of Wired Magazine is the leading author of the 2010 Scenario Planning Report Lockstep for the Rockefeller Foundation. These people are all interwoven, all like working together to push to push this um, revolution forward. Um, part so that basically goes through. Part one is about what the why that film exists, why it's cre- okay. I don't want to say why it exists or why it's created because I'm not the director of the film and I don't know what his intentions were. And they may very well be very different from what you know um, ultimately what it is being used for. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I just I don't want to put words into his mouth. I I haven't looked at I haven't looked that closely at the um, director of the film, but basically I'm just saying, here's what it serves. And so it serves to uh, obtain social license. It serves to say, 
okay, Whitney, you know what? It's scary going forward. There are problems with artificial intelligence, but don't worry. We're just as concerned with you as you are, and we're going to make sure all those things are taken care of, right? So it's basically um, assurance, right? And conditioning people into the idea that people have their back, that there's NGOs and organizations that are very concerned about this, uh, just like Greenpeace, right? You don't really have to do anything. Go back to your show. Go back to whatever you were doing because we've got you. <laughs> and so it's just, <laughs> right. Right. Oh, we, man. We, yeah. And so then part two of the series is about, um, and you know, and it's sort of like, okay, well, what does this film not tell us? It's telling us a lot of stuff most of us already knew. So even though it's, you know, good refresher, you know, come on, we, we, we knew all this stuff anyway. Okay. What they don't tell you is what's happening right now. So, uh, cable, underwater sea cable, which is the length is basically the entire circumference of the earth is being put around Africa right now. So I call it the enclosure of Africa because that's what they're doing and not just Facebook. The populations all over the, the world, like in the G20 states, are on the decline big time. The only populations that are, are actually gr set to grow are um, Africa and South Asia. So all eyes, not just uh, just not suddenly now for some for many years now, have are on Africa. Even NGO headquarters have moved to Africa. That's the next big thing, right? The markets here are saturated. Everyone's in debt. There's nowhere to go. They're, the markets are, 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 you know, that's what this is all about. New markets. So it's off to Africa to um, basically. And digital enslavement um, under the guise under the guise of empowerment, right? I mean, there's so many places in the world at this point. This is the okay. So they call this the fourth re industrial revolution. So we're at the fourth industrial re revolution, and look at all the people that still have no access to clean drinking water, no access to clean sanitation, and we're going to bring them internet. That's the that's the main thing they need. Come right. on. Right? And so it's bullshit. It's all about data now. Data is the new oil. Um, um, it's a new class asset, and that's where everybody's at. And that's where, yeah, that's the new game in town. That was a really good point you just brought up about how these uh, you, they don't really care about clean drinking water or like basic needs, right? Um, but you have people promoting connectivity, internet access for those people or, um, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg uh, behind that or Elon Musk, people like that um, doing those particular initiatives among others. And then on the other side of that, you have people like Bill Gates trying to give these same uh, populations, you know, access to immunizations and vaccines, but not being focused on philanthropy uh, that would improve, you know, things like drinking water or shelter, you know, or, or other basic human needs. And of course, if you exactly. look at Bill Gates' philanthropy, like the Gavi Vaccine Alliance, they say on their website that it's about improving the health of vaccine markets, not the people uh, <laughs> right. that they're vaccinating, not their health, right? The health of the market, right? Which I think is really telling about the mindset of these people, but it's also a testament to just how um, successful they've been in their marketing ploys and just the extreme consolidation, uh, you know, through their uh, massive wealth that they've been able to, um, you know, how much they've been able to consolidate control over the media um, and, yeah. and by extension, the you know, the, the collective psyche 
can really convince people that despite their horrendous track records, you know, this is true for Bill Gates and the World Economic Forum and any of these people, that they have our best interests in heart when everything they've done up to now points in the complete opposite direction. So, you know, it's just um, really telling. And so um, really quick, just to end, I wanted to touch on um, some issues that I think are very related to what we've been discussing, particularly the push for Universal Basic Income, or UBI, and the Green New Deal, which you touched on a little bit earlier. So before COVID-19, during specifically in U.S. politics during the last Democratic primary, there was this deliberate insertion of those policies like UBI and the Green New Deal into the mainstream political lexicon, uh, and then subsequent efforts to really popularize those policies among progressives in particular in the United States. And of course, you know, particularly the idea of a UBI, those are actually conveniently for the World Economic Forum and their allies, cornerstones of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, that are ardently supported by the same predatory billionaires that progressives would normally distrust and view as their antagonists. And of course, UBI, that whole concept goes back to like, what, the the godfather of neoliberalism, Milton Friedman himself, not exactly a progressive, uh, right? So um, it's just kind of interesting to see um, how you know those things have been promoted under under a similar uh, guise, but I was uh, interested in getting your thoughts on um, the role that UBI specifically, but also um, you can discuss the Green New Deal a little more if you if you want as it plays into this. But you know how how those are actually crucial to what they want to do with the fourth industrial revolution, and how this differs uh, from the ways it, it has been publicly marketed. Um, okay, so right after the announcement of the um, World Economic Forum WHO partnership for the COVID-19 Business Task Force um, announced the same day as the pandemic in March, about 15 days later, they announced, um, they unveiled a global, what's it called, the global, it's through the United Nations, the Global Education Fund, which is all actually universal online learning for the whole world and so in that's facebook google mastercard again like all you know all the big players all together people should check that out and so the whole goal to get the whole you know a lot of this is not only contraction of economies like crushing out the informal economies crushing out you know artisans small business crushing all that out um, you know, as Amazon and everybody else, you know, quadruples, triples their their profits and um, business. But it's about um, moving everyone towards this universal education and universal um, UBI. And what people don't understand about UBI, like you said, Whitney, it's pushed forward by who? The billionaires, Branson. Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, right? Um, like all the billionaires want to give you UBI, right? Um, you know, let's see, let's see, let's see Branson and Zuckerberg and Gates live on a thousand bucks a month. I'd love to see it. Um, what they don't understand about that is what's coming. Twenty by twenty thirty, they want to have all the world on universal health care, all privatized health care. So. It sounds good. Oh, an extra thousand bucks a month, right? Who can't use it? Who? I mean, we're all trapped in this in this shit system. So unfortunately, money's a part of that right now. At you know, right now at the present. Um. So sounds great. But what they don't tell you is that the reason they want to do it 
and are planning to do it is because it will save them a fortune in other services, for instance, healthcare, um, and all the things, benefits that come along with that for people, you know, dental, um, health, every, I mean, every country has different types of packages for assistance programs and that type of thing. For instance, in Ontario, we have indigenous communities way, way, way up north. And so when they need um, health care, or for instance, if one of the children, um, you know, to be educated, they'll have to leave their communities and go to a city, university or college, that, that um, transportation will be provided. And if it wasn't, there's no way people could afford to pay for it, right? A $600 flight, one way type of thing. All that stuff, because it goodbye. All gone under UBI. I mean, it won't happen at exactly the same time. First, you'll, you'll get your checks and it will feel really good, right? Just like this year in Canada, everyone has served money because they know basically UBI is this. We can give UBI or the people will revolt, right? So it's a choice between um, um, a whole populace revolting or giving them a pittance, which is what UBI is. It's enough so you won't starve to death, um, but just enough, right? And not only that, once you have to start paying for little things that before were covered in other ways through um, health, education, different programs, all that will disappear. You'll be on your own. And that's where blockchain comes in, right? Again, connected to working on the 5G networks. So blockchain creates coercion, right? Without the physical force. So basically you, you need your UBI. Well, through blockchain, um, smart contracts, you will have to fulfill, there's no human oversight, so you'll have to fulfill your end of the smart contract to, to get that check, that money you, meet, you need to feed your children, right? And so it's another element of how to coerce a population. You want your check, you've got, where's your digital wallet? Oh, you don't have one? Well, you've got to sign up. No, you don't have a choice. If you don't have a digital wallet, you don't get it, right? So, so much of this is about coercion as well. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because what we're seeing by a lot, some of the companies we've been talking about today and that you mentioned pretty recently, like MasterCard, for example, you know, they have this um, thing that they are creating and largely trying to implement in, in developing countries called Trust Stamp, which they're, where they're trying to sort of link um, people's financial activity and their um, identity cards um, to vaccine records, sort of as a way to, oh, you wanna continue your participation in the economy? Well, you'll have to get the vaccine and who knows what they could tack onto there in the future, right? Oh, you have to do this or that um, in order to continue to participate um, in the financial system uh, that is you know, all digital now. Um, and, and things like that. Um, so it, it's definitely um, something that is obviously a major factor in this for the people planning all of this out. But I think it gets overlooked very often uh, by people that are, you know, currently, for example, in the U.S. promoting UBI, saying that it's necessary um, and people in the U.S. need it in, in order to sort of weather the COVID-19 uh, crisis and all of that. Um, but ultimately what UBI does, I think, is basically say, 
you know, it, it basically maintains the system as it is, right? Um, by giving people a pittance so they can continue to survive in uh, what is ultimately a predatory system that doesn't benefit them um, by sort of, you know, um, giving them something that allows them to sort of make it a little bit, but as you pointed out, just barely and really nothing else beyond that, as opposed to um, investing instead in the creation of systems that would benefit them and actually be more equitable, but instead, you know, UBI is sort of, um, you know, being being sold as the, um, you know, the, the panacea uh, to, to a lot of these uh, issues. Yeah, I mean, all of this stuff, ultimately, it's presented. What we see, everything's put out. They're not interested in anything other than market solutions. So there's so so many solutions and so much of our problems could be solved, you know, even locally in our own communities. But those are never looked at unless it's everything's at scale, right? Market solutions. And if it's not in their best interest, they, they don't do it. So everything has to be looked at through that lens. You know, this isn't for the best interests of the people. It's always to serve their interests. Right. At our, at our expense. Right. At, at the living world's expense. Well, as we talked about today, it's not just our expense, right? It's also the planet, right? Um, you know, it's also the at the expense of, of nature. The same predators, I guess you could say, that have upended the natural world, you know, are saying they're going to save it. Um, if we go into these systems and implement these systems that are going to undermine that in human society and interaction as a whole. So really, you know, it's, um, uh, to me, the great reset and all of this just seems like a massive way to try and hoodwink people to get them to consent to a system that is totally not in their benefit and would totally, uh, aggravate um, the existing problems to a, a huge degree, entrench them and make them uh, almost impossible to really fix at any time in the future because of the extreme involvement of technology, its use uh, and its use its potential use for surveillance and, and control at the end of the day. Yeah, like I think if we don't stop this, um, we're gonna have a really, really difficult time later on trying to get out of it. Right. So I think that, you know, the point we're at now, you know, it's really hard to do what a lot of people um, in the U.S. and, and other, you know, other places have, you know, the, the, the default response to a lot of these issues in the past, you know, was to kick the can down the road. But as we're, you know, in the middle of what they're saying is this catalyst for the Great Reset and we're moving into this, you know, we can't really do that anymore because if we try to kick the down, kick the can down the road anymore and don't do anything to actively push back again. Um, what they're trying to do here, you know, then we will get the fourth industrial revolution because, you know, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, this is something they're actively trying to create. You know, the, the great reset, the fourth industrial revolution is not something that they're passively allowing to happen. It's something they're actively creating. It's a call to action, right? As, as they say, um, or as they have said for, for the past several years. So, you know, it definitely... Uh, we definitely are at the point where, you know, it's time to make the choice and do something about it or uh, resign yourself to this, you know, Orwellian uh, hellscape that will not save nature as they try are trying to tell you that actually uh, make our environmental problems that are existentially bad right now even worse. So with that being said, Corey, I want to thank you so much for being here today and talking about a lot of these issues. 
but especially because of all the crazy stuff going on right now, including, you know, for a lot of my listeners in the U.S., the crazy stuff going on uh, in and around the U.S. election. You know, a lot of people aren't paying attention necessarily necessarily to these issues, but I definitely think they should, um, because I said at the beginning of the broadcast, you know, this is something that's going to remain, not just in the U.S., but, in you know, for countries around the world, uh, regardless of, of what goes on in the U.S. election or really any other sort of electoral politics situation in any country. This is a global agenda with a lot of money and a lot of power behind it. And if we're not educated about what it is and not paying attention to what um, you know they're doing, we're not really going to be able to stop it. So with that being said, um, thanks again for being here. And thank you to uh, you all for listening to this episode of Unlimited Hangout. Catch you all next time.